Jesus. And now, Father, use your word to impact our lives, using it to chisel away, conforming us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our beautiful Savior. It's in his name that we pray, asking these things. Amen. When's the last time you memorized a Bible verse? Oh, you say, I don't memorize Bible verses, can't memorize. You're going to this morning. Will you open your Bible to 1 John chapter 5? And we're going to memorize 1 John 5, 21 together on our way to Genesis. Chapter 35 this morning in the life of Jacob. If you're newer to us, we're working our way through this incredible book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. We have been on the life of Jacob for a number of weeks and these uh, remarkable stories as God does his work through uh, his promise to be fulfilled that through Abraham he would build a nation and then Abraham had Isaac and then Isaac had Jacob and Jacob is whose life we're talking about in Genesis right now. 1 John chapter 5 verse 21 helps us lay a foundation. I want you to memorize this little verse. You can do it. If you can memorize your own phone number, you can memorize this verse. It's really not that hard. 1 John 5.21 says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's how John ends this epistle. A letter written to New Testament believers. A letter written well after Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose again. The church is established. In other words, these people are us. Isn't that an interesting exhortation? Well, let's get the verse down. We'll talk about it a little bit more and we'll see how God uses Jacob to teach us even further along this line today. Let's say the reference. Let's say the verse, then let's say the reference. Ready? 1 John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Do you have it? Ladies, let's see if you have it. What 1 John 5, 21? I didn't keep my own instruction, did I? Ladies, say the reference and the verse. Ready? Just the ladies. First John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. First John Well done. Men, let's, let's do it now, men. Here we go. Ready? First John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. First John 5, 21. Now, what do you think about when you think of an idol? I think of some kind of uh, totem polish type thing with, uh, um, you know, a carved, intricately carved, intricately painted face, maybe a grotesque, uh, half human, half beast type wooden carving, maybe a stone monument chiseled to look like a big fat guy sitting there with his arms crossed. People bring offerings of food and bow down and pray to it. We don't have a problem with idols, do we? I don't see any idols. Do you see idols? Isn't it interesting that when John wraps up this letter to believers in the Lord Christ, 1 John is all about how to know for sure that you know Jesus for sure. And the last thing he says when he closes out the book is, My dear children, now keep yourself, keep yourself from idols. Well, what's an idol? 
An idol doesn't have to be carved in wood, does it? An idol doesn't have to be chiseled in stone. In fact, an idol is anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God that becomes more important to us. It becomes the passion of our hearts. It becomes the affection of our lives that really in our heart of hearts, truth be known that the thing that drives us, the thing that means the most to us has nothing to do with God has nothing to do with our relationship with God through Christ, but it has to do with maybe a thing in our lives. Maybe, maybe uh, it has to do with an attitude. It has to do with an accomplishment, something that is driving us, something that we are living for that gets in the way. Will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 35 now because I want us to learn a very important lesson about the Christian life through Jacob's example here today in Genesis chapter 35. And Jacob is going to learn, and as though Jacob were here to instruct us on our conclusion today, we want to hear from Jacob. What would Jacob say to us about how to overcome some of these things? As he's learned the hard way on a lot of things, there is an important aspect of living the Christian life, of living for God, that is this. You cannot experience renewal spiritually. You cannot be revived spiritually. You see, you need to understand that Jacob has been on a spiritual vacation. Ever been there? Jacob's been on like an eight to ten year vacation from God. He hasn't heard from God. He hasn't been living for God. He's been all about himself and his own agenda. Chapter 34 very much lays the foundation for chapter 35 because his whole world has been shaken up. He's even running scared. And now he's ready to hear from God again. It's a time of renewal for Jacob. It's a time of starting over for Jacob. It's a time of revival. A man who knows God, getting his priorities put back in place so that he's renewed in his spirit and he sees God and he has God in first place. Listen, You cannot renew your walk with God without renouncing or burying the idols of the past. If you've been on a spiritual vacation, if you're not where you're supposed to be spiritually right now, you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and in the passion of your heart that God would become God to you again. That Jesus Christ would be the drive of your life and that biblical obedience would be the pattern of your life. You can't do that. You cannot experience spiritual revival. I'm talking to people who know God, people who are in Christ. You cannot reorder your priorities. You cannot reorder the passions of your heart until you put to death the things of the flesh, the idols that have been driving you while you've been on your spiritual vacation from God. Let's read our text this morning and... Uh, Chapter 34 has been a remarkable passage. If you were here last week, you know that um, we are in the timeline and in the chronology of Jacob's life where he has left Laban behind. Laban was an uncle that he worked for. While he was there, he got his wives. Yes, we said wives. Remember Leah uh, was... He was married to Leah, his oldest, Laban's oldest daughter first, when he intended to marry Rachel, but it was really dark out and he messed up. And he got Leah instead of Rachel. And then in a baby competition, trying to get his affection and trying to have babies, uh, first Rachel, who was barren, the wife that he loved, couldn't have children, gave her 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 servant girl. 
And uh, he ended up with two more wives. So he ends up with four wives. He leaves Laban behind, brings his wives. He now has 11 children and he's coming. He has 11 boys, excuse me, and one daughter, Dinah. He comes, he's afraid of his brother Esau because he had snookered his birthright. Remember last week, he was so afraid that Esau would kill him or two weeks ago. And then he gets there. He gets through the land. Esau hugs him on the neck, forgives him, reconciles, puts the past behind him. And he's on his way, Jacob, seemingly like he's on a spiritual rise, going to get Laban behind him, going to live for God, going to get back to Bethel where he promised God he would go, where he was getting back towards Hebron, back to his father. And he stops 20 to 30 miles short of Bethel, where he had met God in chapter 28, where he had worshipped, where he had built a monument and an altar. That's where he had that stairway to heaven experience. And then he stops in Shechem. He stops there, 20 to 30 miles short of Bethel. It's likely that this was an 8 to 10 year window. It's also likely that this is the 8 to 10 years that most of his children were in their teenage years growing into adulthood. A pretty, pretty bad time for dad to take a spiritual vacation, wouldn't you say? And there they are. And they're camped out, not quite where they're supposed to be, but the grass is good. He's growing in wealth. And that's when they have this crazy experience with the Shechemites. You have to read chapter 34 if you missed it last week. The great disaster. Now Jacob enters chapter 35, fearing for his life. His daughter has been abused. He does nothing about it. The two brothers of Dinah go and wipe out all the men of Shechem with the edge of their sword. And now he's afraid they're all going to get wiped out. And in the middle of this chaos, this family dysfunction, and he just doesn't know what to do, God speaks to him. Evidently, God has not spoken to Jacob, or at least Jacob has not had ears to hear for eight or ten years. Let's read our passage, draw some points from it, make sure we understand what it's about, and then let's receive some spiritual advice from Jacob at the end to wrap up. Chapter 35 of Genesis, and then, then after the mess of Shechem and the genocide that his boys created and so forth, Jacob's failure to lead spiritually, then God said to Jacob, chapter 35, verse 1, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, or the God of Bethel. Because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing his brother. That would have been approximately 30 years before this. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. 
So it was named Alan Bakuth, or the Oak of Weeping. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, that was where Laban was and where he had been for 20 years, God appeared to him again and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. And then God went up from him at, that place, at the place where he had talked with him. And Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. And Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. And as she breathed her last, as, as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben Onai, which means son of my trouble. But his father named him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Jacob was living in that region. Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's maidservants, servant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. And Isaac lived a hundred and eighty years. And then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is an interesting chapter in that it is, uh, though a narrative, a story told to us more than likely by the historian Moses. Most Bible students believe that Moses wrote much, if not all, of the first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. Some uh, Bible students believe that it's possible that some of the players, some of the characters, like Jacob, may have written some of these accounts it is uh, possible, for example, that chapter 36 that's coming soon, which is the, uh, the descendants of Esau and all about Esau's family, that that was a record from the family that Moses somehow had in writing, possibly written down by Jacob, and that Jacob put have, could have participated. We don't know. But chapter 35, though it is a narrative, it is a story of a man's life and his family, it is also somewhat chopped up. Did you notice that? There's a number of things that happen. He moves a number of places. There's a number of people that die in the passage. 
There's a number of interesting facts that are given. There's a genealogy that's given, and it's kind of chopped up. Let's break it down and understand the chapter just a little bit. Um, I'm going to give you six words. They all start with D, and they might help you if you identify the passage. The first thing we see in chapter 35 and verse 1 is that there's a new direction, a new direction from God. We've already commented that chapter 34 is a chaotic chapter. There is, by the way, an an interesting contrast between chapter 34 and chapter 35 in that the name of God is not mentioned at all in chapter 34. But in chapter 35, it's mentioned over and over in different formats. And and El Shaddai and, and Yahweh and so forth. And it's mentioned multiple times, like at least a dozen times. So where God is not present in chapter 34, God is present with Jacob in chapter 35. One of the things Jacob now has is he has ears to hear God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in the middle of chaos, Jacob realizes he better wake up, get off of his spiritual vacation, and listen to God and get where God wants him to go. And in chapter 35, verse 1, he gets a new direction. Jacob, God says, get to Bethel. Make your altar there again, where you met me 30 years ago. Let's get back connected. And that forces Jacob to make a decision with his family because he knows, verse 2 and 3, that if he's going to take his family up to Bethel and he's going to worship the Lord, then this is the principle of the day of idols that we'll wrap up later on in our passage, that he's got to get rid of some stuff if he's going to renew with God. He can't just take all of his ungodly, pagan baggage and go be up with God and say, Hey God, isn't everything great with us? And so we see the second part of the story. God gives Jacob direction, but secondly, he forces Jacob to make a decision. And so verse 2 says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Now, I take it that they, he literally wanted them to take a bath of purification. Maybe somehow they had already knew what a ritual bath was like. This is pre-Mosaic law instruction. Changing of clothes, indicating putting on a clean garment, indicating a, a kind of a new start, a fresh start. We're going to be clean. But he calls them to rid themselves of all these foreign gods. This is kind of a Joshua moment from Joshua 24. Remember when Joshua at the end of his life, when he was an old man, General Joshua stands up and he says, Choose you this day who you're going to serve. Remember that? And he says, But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And it's interesting, isn't it, that when Jacob stands up like a man and stands up as a spiritual leader who's been hearing from God and listening to God and not on his spiritual vacation anymore, that his family responds. When dad's godly and dad's living the life and dad speaks the truth, his family responds and notice that they bring him the household idols and their earrings. I don't think this has anything to do with the kind of jewelry you wear. Well, it might in a, in a way. I don't think it's a prohibition against jewelry that you got a bunch of ladies slipping their earrings off, getting them in their purse right now. He gathers up all this stuff, puts it in a box, takes it to this great oak. This is likely the same oak under which his grandfather Abraham had met God. It's maybe like several hundred-year-old oak tree. It was evidently very pronounced, very well-known landmark. He goes to this oak, scrapes back the dirt, dumps all this stuff and buries it. We're going to get rid of it. And you kind of ask yourself, well, where did this stuff come from? Well, part of it evidently came from his wife, Rachel, right? 
Remember Rachel? What did she do? When they went to leave Laban behind, she brought some of Laban with her, didn't she? And I'm not so sure Rachel was always so spiritual and godly. She's certainly not the one through whom God gave the promised seed. Leah, the rejected unloved wife, is the one that God honored with Judah, through whom comes David and comes Jesus, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Rachel, she wanted her daddy's household idols. Remember that? That's the story when Laban caught up with Jacob finally. Remember, Jacob snuck away, got three days ahead. Laban rounds up his crew after shearing sheep, comes racing after his son-in-law Jacob, ready to bebop him. He has a dream, and God says to Jacob, leave that boy. God says to Laban, leave, my, leave that boy alone. Don't touch him. Don't say anything bad and don't say anything good. Just chill out. But then he's mad because he lost his household idols, starts ripping up all the tents of Jacob. That's when Jacob makes that death sentence pronouncement. If you find him, anybody in my camp has him, put him to death. He doesn't know that his beloved wife of all his four wives, he loves Rachel the most, has him. And that's when she pretends that it's her time of the month and sits on her bedroll and her her father Laban comes through there looking for her and turning up the tent upside down. And she's sitting there and says, I'm sorry, I can't move. Just not feeling well today. And he, of course, avoids her, leaves her alone, and she's hiding the idols. She was evidently an idol worshiper herself. At least at some level, I'm sure that Jacob must have been teaching them about the God of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac as he was learning, but he was up and down spiritually. There was evidently a a polytheism in the camp. They had idols and they had representations of God there. Remember, there's another thing that went on in chapter 34. Do you remember when Levi and Simeon sharpened their swords and went and wiped out all the Shechemites and killed off all the Shechemites? What did his brothers do? His brothers, their brothers immediately swept down on this little city-state of Shechem and pillaged the place. And they took all the women and the children back home as loot and treasures of war. Took all their stuff. And took all the women and children. What did the women and children of these pagan Canaanite, this pagan Canaanite valley do? They brought all their household idols with them too. So evidently there's his, his camp is filled with idols. And Jacob says, if we're going to move forward with God, the first thing we're going to do is round up all the idols. We're getting rid of them. And then the earrings, Bible students speculate that evidently they had some kind of an earring that they wore or earrings that they wore that were religious, that were pagan, that had symbols on them. We do that even today, don't we? We see people tattooing themselves with pagan symbols. You can see certain symbols and you look at it and say, that doesn't say I love mom. That's some kind of a symbol that's pagan. It's some kind of false religion symbol, an antichrist symbol. It's, It's of the gods or whatever. Foreign, foreign words and, and all kinds of things from other religions get tattooed or get written on t-shirts or worn on jewelry, representing things that are outside of Christ, outside of God. And that's what Jacob's doing. He's just getting rid of all that junk, get rid of it, buries it because he wants to step up his devotion. Number three, we see in chapter 35 that there is a stepped up devotion He has a new direction in verse 1. He has a decision for his family in verse 2. And uh, then uh, in verse 9, let's skip ahead. Let's skip the first death. In verse 9, that's when Jacob returned from Pat and Aram. And I take this to be a new experience. This sounds very similar to the experience where there's kind of like two events that are mixed into one here. 
30 years before when he was fleeing from Esau and he had the dream of the, of the stairway, the ladder to heaven and the angels and God spoke to him and God made that promise, that Abrahamic cov- covenant promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob, you are the one I'm going to bless. You're the one through whom I'm going to raise up a nation. And God repeats almost verbatim in this section, this blessing. If, and Jacob promises to be devoted to God. But he also adds in there the changing of his name. And that didn't happen until, remember, when he wrestled with God all night, not knowing who it was, then before daylight, so he didn't see the face of God. Touches his hip, he's wounded. Jacob grabs a hold of him and said, Bless me, or I won't let you go until you bless me. And he says, Your name is no longer Jacob, it's Israel. It's time for a new start. It didn't take. The name change didn't take. And then, and like another decade has gone by. And so evidently God's doing like what a lot of parents have to do to their kids. Come here a minute. Remember what I told you back there? Let me tell you again. Let me tell you again. You're no longer Jacob. You're Israel. Okay, let's repeat this. Okay, read my lips. This is what's happening. And so God comes to Jacob again and there's a new time of devotion. And Jacob goes up to Bethel and he creates this altar again, just like he had done 30 years before. This is the first time then, look in verse 14. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering. First time drink offering is mentioned in the Bible. This idea of pouring out. It's a symbolic offering. That is an emptying out. It's, it's, it's an emptying of myself so that I can be filled with God. I give away everything I have so that God is all that I need and all that I have. He pours out this drink offering and and this is where he calls the place Bethel, the place of God. And there's a special devotion here. The fourth thing we see in this passage though isn't there multiple deaths. Three beloved individuals to Jacob. I believe all three were very important people to Jacob. The first one we see in verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. And so it was named Alan Bakuth, and by its name it means oak of weeping. I take it that Jacob himself wept when he buried Deborah. Where did Deborah come from? Well, where did his mother, uh, where did his mother Rebekah come from? That's Laban's sister, remember that? And way back... Many, many years before, when Abraham was raising Isaac, remember Isaac's the boy that was almost killed on the altar of sacrifice, but the ram was caught with its horns. That Isaac, he needed a wife. He's like 40 years old, and Abraham sent his beloved, trusted servant far away, up into Mesopotamia, to Paddan Aram, to get a wife. And he runs in. That's the first time we met Laban. And there was his sister, Rebekah. Rebecca agreed. Remember, she watered the camels. Remember that part of the story? And she brought her servant girl, Deborah, evidently with her from clear back then. Her dad had given her a servant to take with her. Evidently, that was Deborah. I take it that Deborah is the one who raised those boys, Esau and Jacob. I take it that Deborah is the one who cooked their food and Deborah is the one who kept their house. And Deborah is the one who is ever present, a constant source of comfort for them, taking care. She loved those boys, evidently. Bible students speculate that the fact that Deborah is mentioned and, Re- and Rebecca is not is, is uh, indication that Rebecca had died sometime before. Isaac still lived in Hebron. 
Jacob is now in proximity to make trips back and forth, and there's no reason to believe that in this time frame he didn't see his father. He probably never saw his mother after he left in his youth. She died somewhere. Somewhere along the line, as Isaac is aging and Jacob visits his father, he, pro- he evidently brought Deborah, this beloved nursemaid to, and household servant, back to his camp to take care of her. And in her old age, she dies. Beloved servant Deborah dies. But it gets even worse. Jacob's life is shaken up as you can only imagine. Verse 16, then they moved on from Bethel after this experience of devotion and worship at Bethel. They move on and while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. You can only speculate that Rachel is aging. She must be reaching the outer envelope or window of time in which she can give child, have childbirth. Remember, she's the one who had so much trouble to begin with that she said, Give me children or I'll die. And in a, in a stroke of irony, she dies in childbirth. Many years later, she's already had Joseph. Joseph at this time is probably about 15 years old. This is probably like two years before Joseph is going to get sold into slavery. And this boy Benjamin is born, the only other son, the only other child that Jacob has with his beloved um, Rachel. Rachel cries out in agony as she's gasping with her last breath. I imagine the camp, whole camp must have known what was happening. They were traveling. She goes into labor. Maybe it was premature labor. And I don't know what all are the different kinds of complications that can cost a woman her life. But there were complications. This happens on occasion, doesn't it? Very difficult. And the camp was silent, I imagine. And Jacob was there and the midwife was there. They're talking quietly. They're trying to take care of her. And she cries out. She names him Ben-One, the son of my pain and anguish. It's kind of an interesting story Kyle said here this morning, right? That, that orphan boy, your name's Problem, or what, what was it? Is that it? Your name's Problem. What's your name? Problem, Trouble. And Jacob hears about it. Evidently at that moment of, as she passes away, and the nurse midwife takes the baby and maybe even places that baby wrapped up in Jacob's hands, said, this is Ben-Onai. The son of Rachel's trouble and pain. And Jacob says, no, no, that'll not do. That'll not do. We'll not raise up a boy believing he's a pain to everybody. This is the son of my right hand, Benjamin. Well, that's a better name, isn't it? Well, later on, Benjamin's going to show up in our story, isn't he? And he's beloved by Jacob. But there's the second death. He has Deborah who passed away. Now Rachel, his beloved wife, passes away. We won't camp on it right now. We'll talk a little more about Isaac's death later. But in verse 28, it says that Isaac lived 180 years. And then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Evidently, even later in their lives, when Isaac finally dies. Do you remember that uh, some, what, 30 to 40 years before this, Isaac thought he was on his deathbed and nearly blind when he was going to give Esau his blessing and Jacob put the goat hair on and schnookered him. Here it is decades later and Isaac finally does pass away old and full of years. The brothers are still evidently getting along well enough to bury their father together. 
Let me comment on this without taking any time. Trust me that um, Bible students, they use the ages of these men, Jacob and Isaac, and how old Joseph was when he was sold into Egypt, because we're not given it in clear detail. But if you match up the ages and you figure out how long he worked for his first wife, Leah, and his first wife, and then his second wife, Rachel, 14 years, and then six years of messing with the spotted sheep, that's 20 years, and then how old the children were. They figured out that probably this notation in the end of chapter 35 probably does not happen in chronological order here, but that this is an event that is recorded here by Moses the historian, but it is something that's going to happen later, that probably it's after Joseph is in Egypt when this happens, and that Isaac watched his son Jacob grieve over his son Joseph, seemingly his death, when he thought he was shredded by wild animals. Somewhere along the line, he dies then. And there it is. Three important players in Jacob's life are gone. So we have this um, accounting of death. You'll notice a fifth thing that happens in this chapter is a disgrace. There's a disgrace. This disgrace that is notated, and it seems to come out of nowhere. It's verse 21 in chapter 35. It says, Israel, that's Jacob now, he's using his new name. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. And while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. That's all it says. It's like, what's that all about? Where'd that come from? We already know that these are pretty rough guys. We already know that Jacob's been on spiritual vacation. He's been raising them in a a pagan community or on the outskirts of a pagan community all through their teenage years. They're highly influenced by the world around them. They're, They're idolatrous. He's had to take away their idols and bury them. He's trying to clean up his family. I suspect, as do other Bible commentaries, that chapter 35, verses 19 and 20 are in direct relation to the account of Reuben. Notice that it's after Rachel dies that Reuben goes in and lies down with his father's concubine in this incestual relationship and disgraces her. We aren't given any details. I take it to be a one-time event. And we don't know how Bilhah felt about this or what. I would take it that she was somewhat older than Reuben. Remember that Reuben is the firstborn. Reuben's mother is Leah. Do you remember that? Leah, the unloved wife. Do you remember that? Leah, the woman who lived her whole life longing for the love of her husband. Leah, the woman who lived with an emptiness and a sadness all of her life. And the one who, even though she kept having all these boys, could not get the attention and affection and real genuine love of her husband, Jacob. That's Reuben's mother. Do you know who Bilhah is? Bilhah is the servant girl that Laban gave to Rachel. And when Rachel begged God for children and couldn't have children, she finally negotiates a deal with her husband, remember, and gives Jacob Bilhah so that she might, in a surrogate-type manner, have have a baby through Bilhah. Do you remember the order that Jacob lined up his wives and his children when he thought, when he was passing through the wilderness and he was, Esau was coming at him with 400 men, And Jacob separates his family because he's pretty sure that Esau might wipe them all out. You remember what he does? He puts Zilpah and her two boys out front. Cannon fodder. And then comes Leah and her children. And then comes 
Bilhah and her children. And then comes Rachel and Joseph only at that point. If they started to fall like dominoes and Esau puts them to the sword, he was hoping at least Rachel and Joseph would escape and through him God would be able to fulfill his covenant promise. How do you feel if you're out front? How do you feel if all your life you grow up and your daddy doesn't love your mommy? Don't you think there's times when you hate your dad? Don't you think there's times when you would take him out if you could because you've seen your mother crying herself to sleep in the tent, longing for love? And I think what happens here has very little to do with sexual passion. It has everything to do with Reuben evidently one day had the right opportunity, whether Bilhah allowed it, it was not evidently forced. He had the opportunity to punch his pop right in the face with this kind of behavior. And it was a political move. It was a power move. It was, I hate you, Dad. It was a little bit the move that some of King David's sons did later. We don't have time to talk about it. It's pretty interesting stuff that when King David had concubines, he had sons who slept with his concubines, and it was to show the kingdom that they were as powerful as their dad, taking over his wives. These guys are something, man. Do you know the second thing that's happening here, I think, that's of interest is... If Rachel's gone and Rachel's the beloved wife, Rachel's the beloved wife, then who's the next wife in line now that Rachel's gone? It's going to be Bilhah. Bilhah's the one that was Rachel's choice. She's the one that was closest to Rachel, and so Jacob's affection is going to turn to Bilhah. And so if Reuben can go in and disgrace Bilhah and corrupt her, and that's what it did, once Israel found out about it. Jacob heard about it, says he didn't do anything. Later on, he gives an anti-blessing to Reuben because of this. But what I think Reuben was doing is he was trying to get Jacob to turn his heart to his mother Leah, wanting so much to please his mother that he disgraces Bilhah so that he knows his father Jacob will never go into her in that way ever. She will be, in essence, a living widow the rest of her days. And maybe Jacob now will turn to Leah. Maybe. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting what sin will do to your family. Hmm? We've got a bunch of other lessons to learn, but we've, we've got to stop there. I have no idea how the Spirit of God will take so far where we are in our message and apply it to your lives. Will you let Him? That's what the chap, how the chapter unfolds. We have Jacob's instruction to receive. Somehow I'll refashion it for next time. We've got to talk about bearing the idols. Do you know that? We've got to talk about getting rid of the foreign gods. That's where the application of this passage will end up. But for now, let's just bow our heads and close in prayer as we must go on. We're Americans and we run by the clock. If we were in Africa, Kyle, we could just keep preaching. But uh, we're not in Africa. Let's bow our heads. and Father, take your word and and use it as you see fit, as we've just been able to explain the passage and unfold the historical context. And Father, certainly there is a lesson there about loving our wives and loving our children and letting sin take over our families. The importance of dad standing up and getting rid of the idols out of their homes. Would you please teach us, use it, encourage us, bring us back another day if you tarry that we can continue to let your word chisel away at us. It's 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.